Hello, this is Dr. Dan Guerra coming back to you again from Authentic Biochemistry. And this is part two of a short segment on diabetes <clears throat> uh, that I'm specifically dealing with because we want to get back to a major discussion of the immune response as it relates to invading pathogens and how that is linked up to pre-existing conditions such as obesity, type 2 diabetes, and other linkages to metabolic disorders that associate with patterns of lifestyle, behavior, sedentary uh, uh, lifestyle, as well as aging. So last time we left off, we were talking about the study that associated obesity with type 2 diabetes and how insulin resistance became a prodromal state that then often marked the fate of the individual if they didn't start reducing caloric intake, particularly controlling their glucose levels and their fatty acid levels in the blood, and of course, by maintaining a high exercise regimen. Um, so right now, I want to just jump into the uh, take-home message here. What is the relationship between obesity and insulin resistance and dyslipidemia? First of all, you start off with a condition of central obesity. This isn't something that happens overnight. This is why the prodromal phase for diabetes and for cardiovascular disease, heart conditions in general, and even many forms of cancer and autoimmune diseases are very slow and take many, many years before they establish. And this is because the this equilibrium of metabolism takes a long time to get completely where the normal homeostatic controls, such as hormonal, no longer function. So central obesity is already an unhealthy pathophysiological state. Unfortunately, the data coming out of the CDC and the NIH in this country are showing us that central obesity is occurring earlier and earlier in a person's life. And we even have now an obesity epidemic in high school age people. Certainly at university where you never saw, there's also a huge increase in obesity. And with that, all the potential for pathophysiological conditions such as type 2 diabetes, at least in a prodromal phase. So you start off with central obesity and what that links up to is insulin resistance. So remember, excessive amounts of insulin are secreted by the pancreas but it fails to cause glucose clearance in the blood. This is because insulin-dependent glucose uptake in muscle tissue, for example, and in adipose requires glucose transporters. The glucose transporter mediated response after insulin induction through its receptor is linked to the metabolism of that cell. So the glucose transporter can't make it to the surface to take in glucose if there's excessive amount of fatty acid also coming into the cell through a receptor like CD36. <clears throat> also, high levels of lipoprotein movement and transport introducing triacylglycerol into muscle and adipose. These are the major tissues that start to really build up with excessive amount of lipid. Adipose, by design, is going to generate more and more visceral fat as more and more adipose is laid on. Adipocytes grow by increasing in size, not by division. 
So the more triacylglycerol that comes in or the more glucose is converted to fatty acid and then to triacylglycerol in the adipose tissue, the more the visceral fat will grow over time. So free fatty acids increase, and that increases insulin resistance because that will block glucose uptake. Glucose uptake is going to be blocked because of the inhibition of the GLUT transporter, and this is because of the AMP kinase pathway that we've talked about before. What this will lead to is an increase in the production of apolipoprotein B, an increase in hepatic lipase. This will all result in higher levels of serum triacylglycerol, higher levels of serum small, dense, low-density lipoprotein, and a decrease overall in high-density lipoprotein because it's going to be cholesterol-laden, and the cholesterol that's in the HDL will not be able to maintain apolipoprotein transfer from the LDL pathway because of the excessive amount of lipid in the serum, as well as the high level of glucose is no longer entering the cells that require the insulin receptor. So it's a vicious cycle of dyslipidemia, hyperglucosemia, uh, and then a corruption of regular endocrine hormone control. There we're talking about adipokines, uh, particularly things like leptin and adiponectin and ghrelin, and then associate increase in adipose depot fat, and then an overall linkage then to increasing the amount of lipid deposition in, uh, in various vascular beds and also around the cardiovascular system in general. And this then adds further damage to the heart, further damage to uh, the vessels that are uh, transporting blood into the heart. There are occlusions. This can cause then atherosclerosis. This can, atherosclerosis can, of course, occur anywhere in the body, and that in, it includes in the brain. So it also enhances the potential for stroke. So this is what the problem is. <clears throat> So the overall treatment for obesity, which is the beginning of all of this disease state, is nutritional control. Nutritional control is basically the fundamental behavioral response that can limit the amount of type 2 diabetes as well as cardiovascular disease, cancer, and also autoimmune diseases, all linked then as a prequel to having a pathophysiological state and more prone to infection, more prone to autoimmune diseases that link up to hyperimmunity. So sometimes you have to change the diet and also meal patterns and timing. Um, there has to be a very careful attention to how much total calories are consumed versus how much exercise a person gets. This should be going on at a very early age <clears throat> there are a lot of eating disorders that have been described associated with obesity. Um, most of these can be controlled by the will. Uh, there are some very rare mutations where there are corruptions in the leptin pathway or in the adiponectin pathway or even ghrelin, but these are not the contributing factor associated with obesity-linked disease. Obesity-linked disease is related to the fact that people overeat and lead sedentary lifestyles. So this is a, this is a disease paradigm uh, and uh, overall epidemic in this country.
that could be limited by behavioral change. So exercise is a key feature. There are a lot of uh, oral anti-diabetic drugs out there. Um, there are the sulfurias. There, uh, there are various drugs that inhibit uh, portions of the electron transport chain, which will then block the oxidation of NADH, preventing the production of reactive oxygen in mitochondria. Um, this is how metformin works. Um, and there are also drugs that work on um, increasing the feeling of satiety, um, like high fiber, uh, uh, usually over-the-counter drugs. These have a limited effect because if people don't take them, they still consume more food. And if the appetitive response is not regulated by leptin, then nothing that you can do with a high-fiber diet is going to um, allow the dysregulation to come back into um, any, any kind of control. So basically this leads to overall understanding that you have variable fuel input, that is biofuel. You store some of that fuel or you use molecular oxygen to oxidize it ultimately. Uh, and then you, from the either lipid, carbohydrate, or protein, you ultimately generate carbon dioxide, water, and then because if it's a protein, you're going to make urea as well. <clears throat> In the process, you're able to take ADP and PI and turn it into ATP. And then that ATP is used on a variable metabolic demand. And so high levels of variable fuel input will then cause corruptions within that input to output circuit. And ultimately, it will lead to increased storage and the, uh, of carbon sources. And the number one storage is going to be lipid in the form of visceral depot fat. So what happens when you are in a well-fed state is that the pancreas normally is secreting insulin because the gut is providing glucose and amino acids to, from the, through the portal vein. That would be the small intestine through the portal vein into the liver. Their glucose and amino acids are transported. The glucose can be used to synthesize some component of storage glycogen, which again is a homopolymer of glucose, but also the glucose can be converted via glycolysis to pyruvate and then on to fat, particularly first fatty acids and cholesterol, and then loading up the fatty acids on glycerol molecules, making triacylglycerol, and then esterifying the cholesterol, making cholesterol esters, and then that loading onto VLDL, that first component of lipoproteins after the chylomicron phase from the gut. The amino acids can be used for some protein synthesis in the liver in a healthy state, and of course that urea then will ultimately be uh, synthesized and excreted via the kidney. But what happens at, over time is you have an excessive amount of lipid production in the liver. This can cause steatohepatitis uh, and ultimately various forms of liver disease, ultimately sometimes leading to cirrhosis and then liver damage and even death. So adipose tissue is well um, served by high levels of carbon, both in the form of triacylglycerol and phospholipid and some cholesterol, but also glucose being used to synthesize those lipids de novo in situ in adipocytes. The muscle tissue, when you're in a well-fed state, as long as there's, there's adequate amount of exercise, 
will store intramuscular triacylglycerol. And this is a good thing because the muscle can remain aerobic during long endurance exercise by burning fatty acids directly from triacylglycerol coming from the oil droplets and lipase activity, ultimately the beta oxidation of those fatty acids, generating enough ATP to do a lot of contraction, a lot of muscle work. But an excessive amount of lipid deposition that's not within the intramuscular, within the myocyte uh, increase in triacylglycerol, but actual fat accumulation in place of normal muscle cells. That's what causes a problem with depot fat in the muscle. And of course, the cardiac system, another muscle system, is also uh, one of those areas because of the active amount of transport of lipoproteins, where you can get the errant deposition of lipids from excessive amount of lipoprotein trafficking that can lead to oxidation of those fatty acids and oxidation of the cholesterol to various toxic uh, byproducts and generating foam cells and inducing an immune response, which ultimately can lead to atherosclerosis, cardiovascular disease, um, heart conditions, and ultimately even uh, death. So that's what happens in the well-fed state. When When fasting occurs, the pancreas is able to keep up with the need for glucose production by synthesizing glucagon. Glucagon goes through the portal vein and what glucagon basically does is cause the breakdown of hepatic glycogen to glucose. Um, that glucose can then be sent to the periphery from the liver directly. Adequate amount of glucose going to the central nervous system, being completely oxidized to carbon dioxide, and of course, molecular oxygen being converted to water via multiple reduction phases via the mitochondrial electrotransport chain. Adipose tissue really doesn't play much of a role here except to serve as a source of triacylglycerol going back to the liver and sometimes going to the muscle um, and then burning that depot fat. But in early stages of fasting, that's not something that's really occurring. Many people never get to the stage where you're doing long-term fasting or because of meal deprivation or skipping meals. Um, human body, human metabolism um, evolved with long periods of fasting and then short periods of sometimes abundant food or only enough adequate food to keep the uh, uh, human going until another hunt occurs where high caloric density food can once again be obtained. Humans did not evolve with high levels of fruits and vegetables because fruits and vegetables were growing wild in uh, non-agricultural settings, Uh, various uh, levels of flowering mechanisms and fruiting times meant that there was never adequate amount of fruit and vegetables. So that's not, that's why that's not a paleolithic uh, or any kind of paleo diet um, because there wasn't anything like the adequate amount of vegetables and fruit there are now. Besides that, plants produce high levels of sucrose as a circulating carbon source. And sucrose actually is not a very good carbon source, not only because it's a disaccharide, of course, glucose and fructose, but because of the high fructose mole percent, which is metabolized differently than glucose in animals, particularly monogastric animals like humans. So that's not the way to go. Um, High levels of protein, high levels of lipid in the diet is how human metabolism actually has evolved. And uh, anything anything that differs from that 
or moves away from that general theme is what can then cause dyslipidemia and then the various composite diseases that follow that as sequelae. So that's a really important uh, consideration. Now, what I want to do today is um, stop the general lecture and let's go ahead and do a clinical case discussion uh, with a general uh, heading of diabetes and obesity. So I'm going to give you a paradigm that I wrote uh, for uh, medical school students. And it's a paradigm that allows students to do study on both the clinical aspects of uh, diabetes and obesity, but also for them to be able to interpret that through a setting of biochemical and physiological parameters. So this is a case of a misdiagnosis of type 2 diabetes. 49-year-old female recently moved to Coeur d'Alene, Idaho from San Francisco, was referred to the Kootenai Health Clinic for a general examination as part of her job as an air traffic controller for the Spokane International Airport. Her medical history reports a previous diagnosis for type 2 diabetes, for which she has been on metformin and sulfonylurea medication for the last almost two years, about 22 months. Besides her diagnosis and treatment for T2D, she has also consulted with a registered dietitian and exercise physiologist and has been on a controlled, low glycemic index diet, moderate aerobic exercise program, which included running two miles five days a week, daily yoga and weight training 45 minutes every other day. She's been enrolled in a diabetes education class in the Bay Area, successfully completed that training. She has kept daily records of her food intake and exercise regimen and reported adherence to her medications, diet, and physical activities since her diagnosis. So first question then, after presenting this, uh, this case study, question then to the medical students was, what are the signs and symptoms of type 2 diabetes? That's the first question that they need to answer. The answer to that is hyperglycemia, elevated serum hemoglobin A1C, which is glycated hemoglobin, insulin resistance significantly associated with obesity, and comorbid with metabolic syndrome conditions such as hypertension, and dyslipidemia. Those are the general features or symptoms of type 2 diabetes. Now, question two, what is the role of insulin in glucose metabolism? Again, if you're a medical student, you need to be able to answer this. Now I'm trying to give you the kind of idea uh, of what, how you can uh, understand these systems, even if you're not a practicing physician, but you're a person that wants to know more about uh, your disease, say so that you have type 2 diabetes, you've been diagnosed. So the role of insulin glucose metabolism, again, these are short answers, again, for medical students, not for biochemistry graduate students. The answer is the following. High circulating glucose is the stimulus for insulin release as it enters beta cells of the pancreas passively through the GLUT2 transporter. Glucose triggers a cascade of events that results in exocytosis of vesicles containing preformed insulin. After secretion from the pancreas, insulin binds its receptor on insulin-sensitive cells and triggers glucose uptake, uptake through the GLUT4 transporter system. That's what gets corrupted by high levels of free fatty acid, by the way. 
Neurons and erythrocytes use GLUT1 transporter and hence do not require insulin at all. Heart, adipose, and skeletal muscle do require insulin and activate the GLUT4 system. Activated glucose transporters translocate to the cell membrane and facilitate glucose diffusion into the cell. That's how it works. Insulin also enhances protein synthesis, inhibits gluconeogenesis, enhances fat deposition in the adipose and sometimes in muscle, and induces lipogenesis throughout the body. Now, what occurs in type 2 diabetes? This is question three. The answer is the following. As opposed to type 1 diabetes, type 2 diabetes is far more common and often linked greater than 80% to obesity. T2D involves insulin resistance, and in later stages of the disease, eventually beta cell dysfunction and destruction, which leads to a relative lack of insulin once the disease is full on uh, many years down the road. Type 2 diabetes pathology also involves a decreased number of insulin receptors and an abnormal translocation of glucose transporters in stimulated cells. Ketoacidosis in T2D is uncommon or actually even absent, unlike type 1. In general, diabetes types 1 and 2 clinically presents with blood glucose over 200 milligram per deciliter serum after random sampling. Other, that, that's not doing a glucose challenge, for example. Other classic signs and symptoms include fasting glucose level. Here we go. Fasting blood glucose level of greater than 126 to 130 milligram per deciliter, and an HbA1c level above 6.5. So here's some discussion, okay? So again, what we're doing here is I'm giving you an idea of what we would be asking, a question that I wrote for medical students uh, when I was working for the medical school uh, at a university. So what I'm giving you now is the same profile. So now what's the discussion that I can then provide to you for this? This is, this is, the discussion is just as important as the questions I, we just answered, okay? So let's get to that. In this patient, one we just talked about, despite receiving maximum doses of metformin and sulfonylurea for almost two years, I said 22 months, I think, she remained hyperglycemic. Her, H, uh, her HbA1c level was 9.2%. That definitely looks like a diabetic. Clearly revealed inadequate control. On examination, the patient had a BMI of 24.3. Now, that's very lean. And her waist was 29 inches. She was therefore not overweight, nor had any record of obesity throughout her life. Her BP, blood pressure, was recorded 112 over 69. And LDL was 160 milligram. TAG was 148 milligram per deciliter. HDL, 48 milligram. That's all very healthy. Physical examination revealed no acanthosis or skin tags. However, she was already manifesting background retinopathy and microaneurysms and reduced deep tendon reflexes of the lower extremities. Furthermore, workup revealed a C-peptide value of 1.5 nanogram per mil, where the normal fasting range is about 0.78 to 1.89. So she was right in the middle of that. And the presence of glutamic acid decarboxylase antibodies, or GAD antibodies. Since the patient had normal C-peptide levels, insulin was still being released by the pancreas. That's what that means. However, in early stages of T2D, C-peptide levels are usually well above normal. Most indicative of potential misdiagnosis was the positive GAD antibody. 
This is well-recognized, sensitive, and specific marker of the autoimmune beta cell destruction and predictive of declining beta cell function and eventual failure. So remember, I told you this was going to be a study in a misdiagnosis, and that's what we have here, okay? So what, what, I'm, what I'm explaining to you is precisely what I want you to learn, okay? All right. <laughs> so where are we at? The absence of obesity in our metabolic syndrome, lack of acanthosis or skin tags, relatively normal triacyclycerol HDL levels, early presence, however, of macrovascular complications and the inability to achieve optimic, optimal glycemic control despite maximal doses of hypoglycemic agents like metformin and sulfonuria, then led to a reconsideration of her diagnosis. In all probability, the patient had latent autoimmune diabetes of adulthood, or LADA, L-A-D-A. LADA is a slowly progressive form of type 1 diabetes, frequently misdiagnosis of type 2. In many of these cases, reevaluation could result in the correct diagnosis of LADA. Now, that's a very rare disorder. Okay? The confusion stems from the fact that patients with LADA have numerous manifestations of both type 1 and type 2 diabetes. Finding feature of LADA is that similar to patients with type 1, positive testing for pancreatic autoantibodies is manifest. That means you're getting beta cell destruction. See? Furthermore, patients with LADA are frequently misdiagnosed with type 2D, uh, uh, T2D after responding favorably to oral hypoglycemic agents early in the disease trajectory. Patients may have more rapid progression insulin dependency with a typical T2D later on in their disease cycle in spite of maximum therapy with oral medication and optimal lifestyle behaviors like she's been following. Although autoimmune uh, mediated destruction of beta cells occurs in both type 1 diabetes and in LADA, the structure is much slower in LADA Reduced rate of beta cell destruction results in later age of onset and only a gradual progression towards insulin dependency. This case is a good example of misdiagnosis through an all-too-common cognitive error among clinicians called anchoring. Anchoring occurs when a specific pattern or cluster of signs and symptoms generate a dogmatic and narrow diagnosis. That leads to a failure in calling for more tests, thus anchoring the clinician to one diagnosis. Other forms of cognitive clinician error are availability and attribution. And we can talk about those another time. So I gave you that just to give you an idea of what you might learn in a medical school setting about glucose, intoler um, in glucose intolerance, insulin um, insensitivity, obesity linked to diabetes. Now, this was a very rare case. I told you that there are rare cases where, uh, where diabetes is not linked to obesity. But note, this was not type 2 diabetes. This was LADA, right? This is the latent adult diabetes, okay? Totally different thing. And it's an autoimmune disease. It comes on very slowly. It has to do with beta cell de uh, destruction. So it's more like type 1. So I gave you that as an example in case you want to know. Are there examples? Yes. And can you actually describe one at the clinical, at the biochemical level? Yes. And that's what I just did for you. So I'm going to leave you there right now with a little, with that little bit more discussion of diabetes and obesity. Again, type 2 diabetes primarily linked to obesity, which is primarily to behavioral um, choices that lead to an increase in visceral fat and then a complete dysregulation 
of carbon homeostasis, particularly carbohydrate, lipid, and even protein. So uh, with that, I'm going to uh, close this lecture. This is Dr. Dan Huera coming to you from Authentic Biochemistry Studios. This is part two of a one hour long total lecture on the 31st of May, a Sunday, now in the afternoon, 2020. Bye for now.